Hey, everybody, it's Tommy Canale, and welcome to Before the Lights Podcast, the show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. Go get your coffee or grab a drink and get ready. Joining me today is an Italian-American film director, producer, writer, visual artist, and author. He's known for his documentaries such as Let Fury Have the Hour, Frank Serpico, We're Still Here, Johnny Cash, Bitter Tears Revisited. He founded La Luda Productions and has produced more than 15 documentaries, films, videos, and visual art pieces. His films have screened at every major film festival around the world and have been produced and released by companies such as Sony and Warner Brothers. Please welcome to the show, Antonino D'Ambrosio. How are you, my friend? Great to be here with you, Tommy. How are you? Good. I want to give a special shout out to Bob Delaney for connecting us. Bob is a former guest and a great guy. Yeah, Bob is a, I mean, I call him Bobby D. He's a real special character. Yes, yeah. he is. Antonino, tell me, what were your childhood influences? Well, I think I think the very first thing is, um, Tommy, is that uh, for me, the experience of being a kid of immigrants was a massive influence on me. Culturally and socially, you know, in terms of how to think about the world, interact with the world. And the reason I say that is that my father in particular was a bricklayer and he didn't speak English. And so when I was four or five, six years old, he would take me to the job site and uh, and I would be his I would be his translator. Mm. And it was an interesting way. It was, you know, really getting thrown into the deep end of the of the ocean of the pool, let's say to swim because, you know, I'm a young kid interacting with these adults, all kinds of different folks. And, you know, that experience was like really, really rewarding in terms of how to engage in the world. And it became a very, um, it really, really launched my love of words in particular, which is the basis of everything I do uh, in music, film and sports as well. Uh, you know, it, learning it, speaking Italian first and then, and then having to to like really, really be super precise in how I interacted with him and helping him because he relied on me so much, you know, and it was very important for the family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember that being six or seven years old and, you know, after these experiences of being on the job site with all these different groups of people, very, it was very, very cool. And as I, and as I mentioned to you earlier, when we were talking before the show, I grew up in Philly that, um, you know, I'd go home and write these short stories about my experience. And, um, but there was a parallel track in that because I grew up in this neighborhood of Italian immigrants from the same part of Italy, which is where kind of followed these in, in, uh, it was first in West Philadelphia and then Northeast Philadelphia. And then in Italy, the people we were, the, the community we were from is called Colia Verduno, which is about 45 minutes, maybe an hour North of Naples. And it was a mountain community, like a, they lived in, it was a, in the mountains. And uh, we actually moved back for a little while when I was, when we were kids, me and my brother, my mother. And, um, and uh, that influence was a parallel track with another cultural touchstone for us, which was the love of sports. Sports is a reflection of being part of the community. In particular for, for, in particular for us, it was, of course, soccer. So we had the kind of love of soccer following the Italian national team, of course, Italian national team won the 
World Cup in 1982. It was very exciting to be here in the United States to see this Italian community really kind of coming together around that. But on the flip side of that, in Philadelphia, a massive touchstone influence uh, on me really as a creative person as well and a storyteller was Dr. J, Julia Serving. And, you know, Dr. J is, a, is really one of those special characters in American history. And I remember being young, Tommy, and seeing a quote from him, played with the Nets in the ABA, mm-hmm. famous for the fro, but playing above the rim, really the kind of the innovator of playing above the rim, you know, famous for the, the dunk from the foul line, you know, all that kind of stuff that Michael Jordan then would take to other heights. But I remember reading Tommy a quote from him that always stayed with me, massively influenced me, allowed me to blend these worlds together. Music, which is a, was a massive form of, of discovery and uh, an, an exploration of my curiosity, was this idea, Dr. J saying, that he played basketball like a jazz man, never played the, sna- the same note twice. I like right? that. And I grew up playing saxophone. So seeing this person who I loved, who was this just fantastically beautiful person in every way, in terms of how he interacted with the community in Philadelphia and what he did, he brought us a championship, you know, kind of merged these two worlds that I loved because I love jazz as well, uh, you know, kind of put me on this journey. So I think those are some of the bigger touchstones for me, you know, and, um, you know, I, I loved the physicality of how sports in general can be brought into the arts. And one of those early touchstones for me was the martial arts star Bruce Lee. So I was loving Shakespeare, learning about Shakespeare. I was loving Dr. J and I was loving Bruce Lee. <laughs> and it was like merging all these this you know, these disparate Of course, I was also, because I was playing saxophone and clarinet at a young age, I was learning to love Miles Davis and Duke Ellington, you know, and it was, you know, it was an exciting time to kind of, you know, merge all of that. And then years later, you know, bring that to bear in all my films and in my work, you know? So did the love of writing then originate when you were translating for your father or did that kind of develop later on? I think, I think, I mean, here's a story I could share with you. You know, my mother was concerned that I spoke Italian only first. And so she would put me in front of Sesame Street when I was two or three years old. And she discovered that I would turn the TV off and then go into the room and pick up whatever was around and start kind of trying to write. So I think that I, you know, she, she noticed that I started seeing that the language that we were living in, which was English, was different than the language that we were speaking at home. And I was trying to find a way to express that middle ground. I think the translating with my father, which was super visceral, you know, obviously because you're interacting with, and it was like all these men and all these different groups of men or these different groups of people, all these different parts of, of Philadelphia and even other parts of the tri-state area that I'd never been to. I'm a kid. You know, I think it kind of uh, inspired me to want to write you okay. know, you know, and I think that's where it set it off. But then I remember really discovering in particular, uh, I went to a Catholic school in, in the Philadelphia area 
and we started learning about Shakespeare and they were these kind of truncated versions of the plays. And they were on these, like, I mean, Tommy, they were like terrible, like, you know, newsprint magazines that came off on your fingers. And I remember reading Much Ado About Nothing, you know, which is, you know, one of his more farcical plays. And it just, and it's also set in Italy. And it just reminded me so much of my family, you know, it was a musical quality to writing as well. You know, there's, there was just something about it that, you know, and I tell my daughters all the time, you know, the great thing about your imagination is that it's limitless. Mm-hmm. And, Agreed. you know, you, you know, you have to really find those forms to express yourself creatively that make you feel limitless. I mean, that's the great thing about being human. If you could dream it, you can make it reality. And, you know, and you could do that in these various mediums that for me, I joined together sports, music, and uh, film. You know, you mentioned Shakespeare having some kind of relation to your family. I think as a fellow Italian family, we all yes. have limitless stories that we can write <laughs> that kind of yes. correlate to different things that maybe other people don't get, but we kind of get ourselves. So yes. I, I'm following you there. Antonino, what, how did you get started then in the film business? And for our listeners, what was the breakthrough for you, the aha moment that you went, this is what I'm going to do and this is why I want to do it? You know, it's, that's a great question, Tommy. You know, I never really, I went to graduate school at NYU and when, when I was 15, my father died and it kind of changed the course of my life. And I ended up going to, I ended up becoming a financial analyst out of college, which was not what I wanted to do. And I worked for a very, very big bank. I got successful, but this was not the path. And I ended up applying to graduate school at NYU as a way to, to get into the NYU, into the New York City art scene. Okay. You know? uh, and I did that. And um, I went to NYU. While I was there, I actually, I just, you know, I was in the, at the film school. I wasn't going to film school. I was going actually to public policy graduate school there. And I happened to be at the film school for, for some reason. Uh, and it's a very prominent film school, mm-hmm. to School of the Arts. And I remember that they were looking for someone to direct a short documentary. I'd never even picked up a camera before. I had ripped off the whole flyer so no one else could have access to it. <laughs> and I presented myself and I got the gig and I made this 10 minute documentary. You know, a couple of years later, uh, and it did, you know, it did pretty well, but it was just, it was a small kind of almost PSA kind of thing. A uh, couple of years later, I had the good fortune of meeting Joe Strummer the lead singer of the clash famous punk rock mm-hmm. rock band. I spent all this time with Joe Strummer in New York city and I took all these notes and, um, he ended up dying not too soon after I hung out with him. Sadly, uh, at the age of 50 years old, and I was, uh, maybe at this point, 30 years old. And I had all this information with about Joe Strummer. I ended up getting a book deal presented it to a colleague that I knew in publishing that gave me a book deal. But in the process of writing that book, I met a host of artists and people, all kinds of artists, filmmakers like John Sayles and Jim Jarmusch. But I also became very friendly with Tim Robbins, the actor, Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins was coming off. I interviewed him for the book. So there's an essay with, you know, about that. He was coming off the Oscar for, um, and I can't recall the film now, sadly, but the film that was set in Boston, he had just won the Oscar. We were, we were meeting in his office and he talked about, 
my book and he thought it would make a good film. And I said, great. Would you, you know, would you want to do it? And he said to me, you should do it. And that's essentially what ended up happening, but it took seven years. So, hey, but, you, you know, I, it's, you it got that. On a, exactly. Thank you. It sent me on a journey. It took me seven years to make the film, the piece of money together, but it was an amazing experience learning how to do that, to produce, to direct in that way. And then the film became a big hit at the Tribeca Film Festival. And, um, and then from them on. And so, but you know, the thing that I think in terms of the aha moment is that we are a very visual culture, you know, and to really translate your particular ideas or stories or things that matter to you. Uh, I think the best way to do that is a, a very powerful, emotional, psychological way to do that is through a visual format in films. And for me, film allows me to bring everything in mm-hmm. because it's visual, it's writing. You know, they call it writing with light, but you know, you also have to be a good writer to write, you know, to write the scripts, to write the kind of, you know, your ideas down into a coherent, coherent story that allows you to film it. But, you know, my films are very musical. They have a lot of music in it. And um, so allow me to bring that element as well. For my listeners that are looking to get into this field, Mm kind of explain to them what are the hurdles and then slash struggles of being a film producer? You know, the hurdles and the struggles are probably one thing and it comes, you know, one big thing, which is always money, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to be, you know, well, on that, let's go, let's go on this one, Antonino. Then how, how does a film producer make money? If somebody's looking into it going, I want to do this, explain to them how they're actually going to make money. So this is good because, you know, I, I don't want to be kind of like boil it down to something so simplistic or reductive as money, but it ties into to your earlier question and to what you're asking now. The key thing is to have a clear vision. You have to know what you want to do, how you want to do it, and you got to be able to carry it off, you know? So it is development. It is producing it and then implementing it because the film, once the film is made, the, the, and I feel like this about, about um, nearly create every creative endeavor, whether you're making a record or you're making, writing a book or you're making a film, you know, it's never done because it's something that's done well, it continues to be made with the audience it finds, you know? Uh, but there has to be real intention behind what you're doing. And that requires like, you know, a great deal of rigorous work. So just like an athlete has to have the fundamentals of playing a particular, you know, particular, whatever sport they're sure. playing, you know, you have to know how to play defense. You have to be, you know, you have to, the same thing it applies in, in the world of film. You have to be able to know to tell the story, you know, uh, whether it's just three act structure, all those kind of like fundamental things. And then you can put your own spin on it. I mean, that's where the creativity comes in. The artistry comes in. But I think the first and foremost, you have to have a clear vision of what you want to do. And then coming out of that, particularly for me as an independent filmmaker who has to do, I've been fortunate in my career. I worked with Sony. I worked with IFC. I worked with Sundance. You know, I'm working now with, with, with Warner brothers and HBO and I've, and I, you know, 
I have a team, agents and managers, you know, and they help bring things together, you know, but my strength has come from really knowing every aspect of how this game is played, you know, making films, Mm -hmm. which includes producing. Luckily I'm a writer, you know, that helps me because I don't need to find that other component of someone that comes in and does that for me. Um, But, you know, once you kind of have a clear vision of how you want to carry this off, you know, this is a very collaborative field. It requires you to work with lots of different people. And that's the next, I think, key step is when you, you have, you have a clear vision, who are those people that are going to be, are going to help you carry out that vision, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's very much like being on a team, you know, there's gotta be, you know, early in my career, Tommy, I did everything. I shot the movie. I edited the movies, you know, I did the sound, you know, that was fool's gold. I mean, the, you start things, there's going to be one, two or three areas of, of the work that suffer, you know, you know, quickly I learned that you have to surround yourself with the right people to help you carry this off, you know? And then with that, you know, comes, you know, building the relationships that help you develop a financial structure because films are not cheap to make, you know? Speaking of that, what does it cost to make a documentary on an average? I think if you want to make like a high quality documentary, something like, you know, well, some of the ones that, you know, I've made recently or something that you're like seeing, you know, let's take uh, like the you know Miles Davis documentary, sort of great example on Netflix. I mean, these documentaries range from anywhere from one point five million to three million dollars to make. You know, like uh, you know, in the grand scheme of the film world, that's not a big budget. But in the documentary film world, that's that's a a big budget. You know, mm-hmm. and you know you, you need that money for various reasons. It's not just for uh, shooting the picture, you know, there's a great deal of real editorial work that needs to be done in the project, which could take time. And, and that time is where the money comes, becomes very key, you know, because mm-hmm. a documentary could take, I, I mentioned left year, have the hour, it took me seven years to make, you know, my Frank Serbico film took me two and a half years to make. So it can range from three years to, you know, 10 years to make a project, you know, and that, that requires, you know, that requires money. That requires right. money. How much research are you doing then? Not so much start to finish, but say from idea, this is the concept I want to do to actually getting it off the ground. For me, research is important. So I, I'm not, a, I'm, I, that's something I never take a shortcut in. So I do research continuously. I mean, even when, the film is done. I'm still doing research. And what I mean by that is that, you know, there's a, there's a whole nother process when the film is done of promoting the movie, you know, and you have to be prepared to answer the questions that have now developed post making the film, you know, because like anything else, these are not static, you know, they move with the time. So you may have started the project like this, like my Frank Serbigo film, for example, in 2015, 2014, but it came out in 2017. And then we were still promoting in 2018 and the political landscape was different. The cultural landscape was different. So that, you know, for me, it's very, very important that you be able to articulate your ideas in a way that really support the narrative of the film and what you're trying to accomplish, which continue to evolve. If if something's done correctly, 
And this could seem like, you know, banal statement, but it is timeless. You know, it's like you should be able to pick up this project 50 years from now and it's just still resonate. And that happens with really real rigorous research from start to finish. Agree. I'm a big research guy. I, I love doing research. I think it's what separates those from top to bottom. I don't think there's a middle. You know, I think there's people that don't do it and then there's people that do it and then you have to separate yourself from those that do it. And it's big for me. I I, I enjoy it. It's the most enjoying thing I do with this podcast is research all my guests. You have to do See, it. I am completely aligned with you on that. In my Johnny Cash book that I turned into a film, I interviewed over 200 people when I wrote that book. You know, and I, you know, some people would say you don't need to do that, but I felt like, you know, I, I, it was very important for me to do that. And one of those people was Pete Seeger who ended up dying after I wrote the book. And I ended up having all this, you know, that's all why of this material with Pete Seeger, you know? So to me, and what you're also talking about, Tommy, the way you described it was beautiful. It's hard work. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that is hard work and the hard work will reveal itself in the end product. That's what that's about. Agree. How do you decide what to leave for lack of better terms left on the editing floor and what to keep? Oh, yes. We call that killing your darlings. Right? <laughs> and, uh, it's like, uh, it never, it's, it always remains painful, but you know, part of the process of growing as a, as an artist and as a, as, as a, you know, someone that, you know, does the hard work or the rigorous work is you have to make those decisions that comes with real rigorous storytelling. You know, my, my work is, has a lot of threads to the tapestry. There are multiple, you know, storylines going on. That's how I met Bob, you know, who brought me to you because he spoke in my Serpico in my Frank Serpico movie mm-hmm. about his time undercover and his time with post-traumatic stress which is a thread of the story in Frank Serbico. You know, there's another thread where he becomes famous because of Al Pacino, another thread because, you know, you know, whatever, there's all these different threads. Um, a lot of it is about simple is better, you know, and I, that is like a mantra of, of ours when we're working on these projects. You know, the idea of it cramming everything in because you feel like that reveals you to be a great researcher, a great thinker, a great artist is not the way audiences absorb that. It's too much. You're right. And so once I realize we need to keep it simple, because that's where that's where the power lies, you know, and also because film is different than writing um, and even music in that regard, you're doing a lot of showing, you know, you don't have to tell as much. And so that's another thing is that when it starts to feel too, and as my career has progressed, you know, I've experimented with different ways of doing films and I'm doing a new film on Roberta Flack right now. I saw uh, that. Yeah. The music superstar. And, you know, and you know, that's going to be a much more intimate film, you know, moving, you know, so there's different ways that you tell the story, you stay true to the way you tell the story. And part of that is, you know, you got to have the guts to get rid of things that become a little distracting, you know, there's like great things that happen that you're just like, you know, and sometimes you got to follow that because then that becomes, that's the great thing about documentary rather than narrative film, like, you know, dramatized projects is that 
the spontaneity or like the ability to move with history is different. And so, you know, sometimes history presents you with something and you have to, you have to embrace that and put that in the project, which shifts the project. And that's exciting. So you have to have that built in, you know, we're going to talk about some of the documentaries you've done in specific here in a minute, but before I forget for my listeners in the show notes, I'm going to put links so you can check out all these, all his work. I've seen a lot of them. It's great. He just brought up the Roberta Flack thing that's going to be called Limitless. And I'm excited about this. The film's going to feature Alicia Keys, John Legend, Lauren Hill, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, Adele, Ariana Grande, Michelle Obama. So if that's not a stud-studded list, I don't know what else is. But <laughs> Antonino, what is a typical day like for you? So the great thing about doing this work is that, you know, every day, I mean, because I'm also working in these different fields, right? Every day is a different day. I mean, for example, you know, it allows me to speak to people like you. It's just, that's great because part of why I do this work is this ability to interact with people that you would never be, you know, normally not be able to interact with right. because this work has fingers, you know, it allows you to really reach out and take someone's hand and connect with them like we're doing right now. So, uh, but I, I start off every day, usually with my daughter, get up with her very early. And then I write for at least an hour. And then, you know, we meet with uh, my production team ranges, you know, now we're in this COVID moment. So it's a little tricky. So we're never together. We're either doing what you and I are doing, talking like this, you know. Um, so we have about 17 people that work in the production company. There's other projects I'm producing. I'm producing a film on McCoy Tyner, the jazz legend. So what we try to do from day to day is see what project needs the most attention. Because a lot of this work, too, is keeping the energy of the projects going because the projects are a little bit of, it's a marathon, you know, uh, not, not a, not a sprint. Uh, so we look at the projects that really need, a, you know, the, the focus also something will come up. For example, with the Roberta Flack project, she was awarded a Grammy last year, um, uh, a lifetime achievement Grammy. And that month was January and February. It was right before COVID hit. We hadn't planned to be in LA. We had planned to be somewhere else with, you know, uh, we were actually going to be in Italy for another project. She gets the Grammy. So we have to go there. We go there. I mean, everything changed. Like it flipped on its head. Right. Mm -hmm. We go there. We're with all these people. Some of these people that you mentioned, because we I'm with her at the Grammys and the team that day, Kobe Bryant dies. Right. So Kobe Bryant dies. We're at the Grammys. It's the same venue. Lakers fans are marching to the front of the Staples Center in tribute to Kobe Bryant behind all these world famous musicians are going in to the Staples Center for the Grammys. But, you know, we're doing a project with Bob, as we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. with the NBA. And that also touched on a project, you know, all of a sudden we were talking to folks at the NBA. We we're talking to other contacts we have in the sports world, even though we were there. And so that's the kind of exciting part of it is that while we have kind of a, a traditional, let's say, I don't want to say workday because it's never traditional in that way, like nine to five, but we have certain moments of production meeting, then, you know, but you have to have this thing built in. Like, for example, Jesse Jackson calling us out of the blue and wanting to talk to me about being in the film. I mean, that doesn't, you know. You doesn't happen. Prepared. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, it's, and, and that's really, really exciting. That That's 
those moments also kind of, for me, Tommy, are validation and affirmations of why this work is really, you know, I think it's important, but why it's also, you know, um, you know, it's quite liberating and, and, and humanizing because all of a sudden here I am talking to someone, you know, that, uh, you know, was on the balcony with Martin Luther King Jr., you know, on that tragic day, you know, and you're, uh, you're reminded of how we all are part of history, you know, and we're all part of like this human story. It's exciting. It's exciting. So you need to be really organized, be able to multitask. Oh yes. And you got to be able to flip and have some flexibility pretty quick if you're going to get into this field. If you're, you know, if you have any rigid rigidity at all, it will be good. Now I'm also, I, because I also am a producer, I have to wear both hats, but because I'm, you know, the artist behind the scenes, it just wouldn't work if I wasn't flexible or fluid because then you would never be able to make anything. It would be too, you would constrain yourself and it would be like a tightening of the, of, of the screw in terms of, you know, you'd never be able to get locked out. You'd be so locked in, uh, you know, to a particular way of working that you just, you can't, you can't do that. The other thing is, is that, you know, because there's, we have such a dynamic group of people, you know, I'm also like leading people. I'm like working with them. They're looking to me, you know, so you have to kind of set that example of what I call creative response. Can't look at things like as an ending when something happens. The other thing about making, you know, doing this work, you probably notice from your own experience, you know, one day you're doing it and the next day they might call you up and say, "Mm, can't do this now, which is what happened, you know, quite a bit during uh, 2020, because what can we do? We couldn't film. Right. You you, know, you know, so. Do you have a proudest achievement to date? You know, I always say when people, and I know you're not asking me like, what's my favorite, like what's my favorite film that I made or my favorite book. Correct. And I, and I would always say I haven't made it yet. Cause you know, the idea is that you're always in pursuit of that. Sure. So, you know, I always want to stay in pursuit of that, but I have to say that the Johnny Cash project in particular ended up becoming quite a moving experience for me. I became very friendly with Roseanne, with the family, with Roseanne Cash and John Carter Cash. And the response to the project within that community, but also the native community, because, you know, Johnny, it was Johnny Cash's work with uh, civil rights and native rights. That was pretty humbling. And it continues to have real resonance. Um, Very well done. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's pretty humbling because it put me in touch with a host of people in the native community that, 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 you know, people from the American Indian movement, but also, you know, people like Bob Dylan and Pete Seeger, like I mentioned, and it was a a reminder of how important it is to do this work, you know, to have the courage to speak, you know, about things that may seem difficult and also just, you know, to engage people in this way that's about connecting and not Mm -hmm. dividing. It's quite, that remains probably the, the most humbling experience. In 1997, you founded La Luda New Media Collective. You've worked with over 800 groups and has a membership of over 20,000. It's a top independent media group in the country by the nation. My question might be a little different. The logo is a smile face on an old camera that kind of looks like something we use put up against your face from an eye exam. 
<laughs> I love it. Where'd you come up with that? Oh, you know, I have to give, that's a great question, Tommy. I have to give Ben Scanlon, a great artist who's based in San Francisco, uh, all the credit in the world for that. He was visiting the Empire State Building uh, right around then, 97, 98, 99. And it's one of those viewfinders that you look at. Oh, you know, yeah. That, yep. You know those old viewfinders? Yeah, put the he quarter in. Of it. Yes, that's it. And, you, you know, he took a picture of it. And I said, you know, we need to do a, 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 a logo for La Luta, something, you know, something that's fun. And, and he said, uh, let me, let me, let me take a try. And he presented that one, one pass. Wow. First pass. And I said, I, I got to, we got to use that. <laughs> and it's like, everyone loves it, you know, cause it's very playful and very, you know, it is, it was, we, we want to encourage that, uh, you know, work we do is, is important, but it's fun and entertaining and engaging. And it's like, I'm glad you saw it as a smiley face. I like that. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Before we go into some of the documentaries, I want to touch on something you did in 2010 and you wrote Mayday. It's imprinted on the back of Shepard Farley's signature flag print. If you would talk about Mayday and the whole concept that it's on a print. So I'm glad that you brought up Shepard Ferry. Shepard Ferry and I are close friends. We kind of come from the same punk rock, hip hop, skateboarding community. Uh, he grew up in South Carolina and I grew up in Philly, but and then we ended up together. Um, it, I was pretty humbled that he, he's done all the artwork for all my films and my book covers, all my, my film posters and my book covers. Okay. But um, he was having a massive exhibit of his newest work in 2010 at the Jeffrey Beach Gallery in Soho in New York, which is a very, very prominent gallery, very important gallery. And he said, you know, I, I want to do a book together with you, and I'd like you to write the official essay for it. And he said, you can do whatever you want. You can write whatever you want. So I essentially thought about it and thought about it. Then I wrote, he called me up. He goes, well, it's, it had been a few months the essays, I need the essay today. <laughs> and I was like, oh. So I, and I'd been thinking and thinking, and my process is taking lots and lots of notes, like we talked about, lots of research, thinking about things. And um, I ended up writing the, the piece in two hours. And he was like so moved by it that he surprised me at the opening of the gallery. And he said, I printed it on the back of a limited edition prints of this signature piece which, uh, you know, which is the, as you mentioned, the, the flag, American flag, which was a reimagining of, of Jasper John's famous American flag uh, painting. And, you know, what, what I, really what I wanted to say in the piece was, I think, the kind of main theme of my work, the importance of having a worldview that it's creative response that moves us forward, you know, and the creative response is, I think, a skill that we or a talent that we all have, which is to take our obstacles and turn them into opportunities to make the world work better for everyone. And in that piece, I did like a range like it was it's like a ranging like story throughout history that kind of ties him that, you know, that connects Shepard as part of that creative response movement. And it's a work that continues to be 
shared and read all around the world to the point that Shepard, you know, later on, him and I did another piece together called We Own the Future, and it became the most asked uh, mural for him to do wherever he went. And he's famous for the Obey, o, o, the Obey logo, which is Andre the Giant. You know, that's his logo, essentially his tag. And, um, and I think that the impetus behind it, why I wrote it was this idea to be for, not against. So much of when we talk about things, people start out by saying, this is what I don't like, this is what I hate, this is what I reject. But taking a different position of saying, what are you for? You know, what are the, what are the things that really connect us? And then also looking at things as not as an ending, but as a beginning. You know, this idea of really flipping how we see the world around us you know, at this, in this way that is not heavy and hard, you know, but a little bit more fun and freeing, you know, because that's also what his, what his art means to me, right. Or someone that does work like that, where he's, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a graffiti artist. He's mm-hmm. using public space or not public space, but, you know, outside as a public gallery. And I think that that is a powerful message to say, you know, creating can, can bring us together. Nice work. Nice Thank work. You. Thank you. Let's talk about the Johnny Cash documentary, Bitter Tears Revisited, the 50th anniversary of the controversial recording of the concept record, Bitter Tears, Ballads of the American Indian. It almost destroyed Johnny Cash's career. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to have you explain that. But the other thing I'd like for you to talk about, Antonino, is how did you find individuals that were relative to this project that were willing to speak? Well, you know, what's interesting is, is that, Tommy, in a career, of, I mean, he, you know, Johnny Cash is like on the Mount Rushmore of American music. I mean, if we ever, if we did that, Johnny Cash might, might be one of those faces up there. Agree. And, it, and, it, and, it, and it's 1964 when he makes this record, Tommy, but he's known for the man in black, you know, all these, you know, that stuff happened in 68, so like what kind of what he began, you know, in American popular culture or pop culture, you can become calcified as this this one moment, you know, Martin Luther King. I have a, I have a dream, you know, that he's still Martin Luther King lived for five more years after that, did all this other work. I mean, it goes on and on. I mean, it, can, it happens in every field, you know, um, it kind of really undermines and sells short really how great of an artist and thinker, musician, and world citizen Johnny Cash was. This is what I discovered, you know, uh, because this record was made four years before all these records that made him the man in black that we knew as the bad. I'm I'm, I'm not sure if I can curse, but as the badass. No, you can't. You're good. He was. <laughs> Thank you. So, you know, and I'll tell you what happened. I was on a book tour for my first book, which also became a film, Left Here You Have the Hour. And I'd happened to have the honor of being Bowling Green University in Ohio. And they had, so, you know, I went, I traveled the world with this book. And part of what I would do is like stop off at universities and do these really interactive events. And I was doing performances at, at clubs with artists like Chuck D of Public Enemy, Wayne Kramer of the MC5, a whole range of different folks. And even Shepard Ferry was involved doing, doing things with me. And in this particular thing, they, they let me stay there for a week and I did like a, a week long like symposium about, about this music. And that included 
part of the honorarium included me visiting the sound archives and they have the, the most prominent and prolific sound archive in the country. And so I asked for like all these records for like original pressings, Duke Ellington, it goes on and on. One was Johnny Cash's Bitter Tears. So as I'm listening to this record, I open the sleeve, I, I pull the record out of the sleeve and a piece of paper falls to the floor. I can see, and I'm looking at the piece of paper and it's, it's a, it's a letter Johnny Cash wrote on his official letterhead, you know, Johnny Cash, you know, signature at the top. And at the bottom, it said, nobody, but nobody more original than Johnny Cash. And Tommy, the letter was this just indictment of the record industry and the cowardice that they were showing and censoring work around freedom of speech or civil rights or, you know, because everything was happening in 64. It was the anti-nuclear war movement was happening. Everything was happening in 64. I couldn't believe what I was reading. And it turned out, I mean, I saw the whole book in my head when I saw this letter. I said, there's a book here. There's a story here. Because it's quite clear, why is this letter in the sleeve? And it turned out that when Johnny Cash recorded her album in 64, he had been trying to, this is a folk record that he made on behalf of Native people and Native rights. He had left Sun Records to go to Columbia with the understanding that Columbia would allow him, this is 1960, to make his most ambitious work. He would give them a record they wanted, you know, the hits, and then he would let him do a record he wanted to do. So he did a record like Grand, called Grand Canyon. It's considered the first spoken word record ever made, for example, right? But the, they hated these records because they didn't sell. So they, they kept trying to block him from making, you know, he did like four or five of these, right? So it, he has two monster hits in 63, including I Walked the Line and Ring of Fire, right? So they couldn't block him any longer. He makes the record, Bitter Tears, Battle of the American Indian. This is in April. In April 1964, it was white hot. Everything was happening. So there was civil rights. Everything was going on. But Native people were staging what they called fish-ins in support of their fishing rights, which were being blocked and denied to allow sports fishermen to fish. So Marlon Brando had joined in this cause, and he had gotten arrested while Johnny Cash was recording this record in Nashville. He got arrested in Washington doing uh, participating in the fish-in. So this kind of all just added to Johnny Cash's thinking about what to do. So he went off on tour and he famously plays Newport Folk Festival where he hangs out with Dylan and Dylan gives him two songs that Johnny Cash ends up recording, they become hits. So in this moment also, this is the famous exchange where Johnny Cash, so he's in a room and people are just like hanging on every word while Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan are on the floor, on the floor, cross-legged, talking to each other with a tape recorder and exchanging music. Cash leaves the room. He comes back, calls Bob Dylan out, and he gives him his, mar his Marshall guitar, which is the highest form of respect in Southern culture a musician can give another musician, right? So this is all happening. While this is happening, the record that he made has been released but censored, right? Radio stations across the country refuse to play he doesn't notice this happening. So he's doing all this stuff. He finds out this is happening after Newport and he's not happy about it. 
Cash flies back to L.A. where his manager is. He buys all the records back from Columbia. He buys the records. He writes the letter, right? Pays Billboard to put it in Billboard as a full page ad because they wouldn't carry it otherwise. And he takes the, the, the he prints out the letter and himself and his manager puts it in the sleeve of every album. And then he goes back on tour carrying the records, 2,000 of them. And he goes to the DJs and he says, give this record another chance. Knowing that they would be too afraid to say no to his face. And he would <laughs> sure. stay there and make sure they played it. So that's just a little bit of the story that became the book and then became the film. Because what ended up happening is now Sony owns Columbia, the, the label. Uh, it, as it happens, one of the, 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 the record heads at Sony Masterworks was someone I'd become friendly with who invited me in. His name is Chuck Mitchell. He used to run Verb Records. Himself a legendary music. He said, let's write this wrong. Let's do this project. And let's revisit it with new musicians. And we did that. It was really just meant to be a record. But then I went down to Nashville, hung out with Steve Earle, hung out with all these musicians that are on the record. I mean, Lou Harris, I mean, he goes on and on. And there was the beginning the film that you saw. What are the challenges of a project like that or something like Serpico? Well, there's always a challenge of uh, convincing certain people that you need to have involved to get the project out, that the project is a worthwhile project and it's not just financial. Is it a project that fits the moment? That's a tricky thing because, you know, what's timely or what's timeless, mm. you know? Uh, so that's a hard thing to do. So you have to be, this goes back again to the rigorous research, the rigorous storytelling, the ability to tell a story, you know, um, you know, for example, my Roberta Flack film, Roberta Flack is the, you know, when we're talking to people about, when I'm talking to people about the project, she's the only artist to have one record of the year, a Grammy for record of the year, back to back. She's the only one, only one. Didn't know and that. it probably will never happen again no. because the record industry is not wired like that anymore. You know, I mean, who's going to be sustainable for two years anymore? I mean, it goes on and on. Or the fact that she lived in the Dakota in New York city and shared the floor with John Lennon and Yoko Ono. So you find a kind of threads, you know, that when you're speaking to people that, that you really need to help you get the project out there, whether it's a, you know, another producer, a production company, whether it is a, distri a distributor, you know, and they all have different, you know, the other thing is that you have to understand what do these folks need? They're all different needs. Sure. A film festival needs something different than a distributor needs, you know, and a particular producer is going to need something different. In a, and the studios are, need something different, you know, when you're working with the studios, because they have different mandates. So you have to be well versed in who you're talking to about things too, but you have to have the, a real passion for the project and the passion that goes, it has to be almost instinctual where, you know, where you end up speaking about it and people connect with it in a way where like, I'm there with you. Let's end with this question. What drives Antonino D'Ambrosio these days? You know, I think that I have a nine-year-old daughter 
And I'm constantly reinforcing with to her to live in the world of creative response and the idea that the imagination is limitless. But she has in turn done something for me, particularly because of this time of COVID where, you know, things have, have changed of how we live day to day. That what we can do is really share our joy and our celebration of being alive in this world. And I think that's what drives me. I think the, all these stories, Tommy, whether it's Left Year at the Hour, even my more kind of visual arts films or Serpico or Johnny Cash, Roberta Flack, the McCoy Tyner Project that's coming up, all of them are knitted together with this idea of celebrating life because that's what these artists ultimately did. You know, you don't sit down at the piano and say, I'm going to, I want to hurt people, for example. You know, they're sitting down at the piano saying, I want someone to hear this song and it moves them to love someone, to connect with someone, to talk to, to some, whatever it may be. And I think that's what drives me. You're paying tribute to these people and what I've seen is done extremely well. So I wish you nothing but the success. Thank you for coming on my show and talking. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Tommy. It was really, really great to talk to you as well. Thank you. Visit my website, BeforeTheLightsPod.com, and click on the Vegas.com banners to get the best deals in Las Vegas. For shows, hotels, and vacation packages, go to BeforeTheLightsPod.com. Also go there for show notes on the episode page and links to everything you may want to experiment with or explore a little bit more. Follow us on Instagram, at BeforeTheLightsPodcast. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale, and until next time, everybody... A salute, a chin chin.